This morning we turn to Romans chapter 1 for our scripture reading. Romans 1, we'll begin reading at verse 16 and read through chapter 2, verse 5. And the text, which I will not reread, will be the last two verses of our scripture reading. We'll conclude then with a text, Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. Romans 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, 
who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? And now the text. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is the sacred scripture inspired, infallible, and true. As announced, the text for the sermon is Romans 2. Verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, despising is a very, very strong word. If a little boy would say to his pious mother, I do not like you, that would be bad. If he would say to his mother, I hate you, that would be worse. But if the little boy would say to his mother, Mother, I despise you, that would be still worse. Despising is a very strong word. It means to take something and to put it down and hold it down and hold it in contempt and view it as despicable. Get that thing as far away from me as possible. I despise it. The Scripture warns us against despising God and all of the good things that He gives to us. For example, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 10, God told David what really was his fundamental sin in his adultery and in his murder. When he came to him through the prophet Nathan and said, The sword shall never depart from thy house because thou hast despised me. Proverbs 3 verse 11 speaks of despising the chastening of the Lord. When God chastens you or me and we feel his heavy hand, it's very unpleasant, but the Scriptures warn, do not despise the chastening of the Lord for whom the Lord loveth. He chasteneth. Proverbs 23, verse 22 speaks of despising your mother when she is old. So when your mother gets older, she's frail, she's a little more confused, she's more forgetful, she's slower. Do not despise her for being old. Matthew 18, verse 10 warns us against despising little ones by sinning against them and inflicting untold damage upon them in body and soul. Do not despise little ones. 
2 Peter 2 verse 10 says that false teachers despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil love, that is, rail against dignities. And now, don't think, first of all, of government in terms of the civil magistrate, President Biden, Governor Whitmer. When Peter speaks of government, he's referring to church government, elders, consistories, authority in the church. And he says false teachers, they're not afraid to speak evil against, to rail against church government, despising it. But the most convicting use of the word despising in Scripture is found in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus Christ hanging on that cross, we in our sins despised him, held him down, held him in contempt, get him as far away from us as possible. He was despised. There are many ways to sin against God by despising Him and His goodness. And the text we consider this morning comes to us with His very sharp word. But it doesn't point at all kinds of sinners here and there. And everywhere you go in the world, you can find all kinds of people despising God. But the word comes to every single one of us, points right at us, right at our own heart, despises thou, O man. Yes, you. You. Me despises thou, O man, the riches of God's goodness. So let's consider this sharp word this morning in the service of the very comforting gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who being despised on that cross made an atonement for us and all of our wicked sins when we despise God. Despising God's goodness, we'll take that as our theme, and look first of all at the goodness of God, second the despising of man, and third the sharpness of the word. Goodness, two times in the text, the apostle speaks of goodness. He says in verse 4, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, God's goodness. That word in the text simply refers to God's goodwill to save sinners. That word can also be translated loving kindness or kindness, and it is in Ephesians 2 verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. Same word, goodness. In his goodness or kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. So, Our God is not only absolutely good in Himself as the sum total of all of His infinite perfections, but our God has a good will. Our God has a gracious inclination. Our God has a favorable attitude toward elect sinners. That's His goodness. But goodness in the text is a very general term. It's the broad term. It's the big circle. And within that broad term of goodness, there are two particulars, two smaller 
circles, two species of goodness, and they are forbearance and long-suffering. Verse 4, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, and now the idea is, that is specifically his forbearance and long-suffering. That's God's goodness in the text, his forbearance and his long-suffering. Let's begin with forbearance. In theology, we typically make a distinction between forbearance and long-suffering. Forbearance being applied to the reprobate and long-suffering being applied to the elect. What's interesting about this text is that it takes both forbearance and long-suffering and it puts them together as the goodness of God to His people. So forbearance is a good thing for us. What is forbearance? Forbearance is the suspension of the full weight, the full outpouring of God's wrath upon the reprobate until what verse 5 calls the great day of wrath. So right now God forbears. That means He has all of His wrath that He will pour out upon the reprobate, but He doesn't pour it out now. He forbears. Now, of course it's true, as the psalm teaches, that God is angry with the wicked every day. And there are, as it were, these little drops of wrath that come out upon the wicked every day in temporal judgments. But the full outpouring of God's wrath, it waits till the last great day of wrath. Because the reprobate all through history, they have to fill up their cup of iniquity. They have to manifest the fullness of their sin. Just how deep was their hatred for God and His anointed. And through the course of history, and finally at the end, in the full manifestation of the tyrannical reign of the anti-Christian world kingdom, ungodly man will show just how wicked he is. But until then, God forbears. He doesn't pour out all of His wrath, destroying all of the wicked now. In the text, forbearance is part of His goodness. His goodwill of salvation toward the elect. So God forbears with the reprobate for the sake of the elect. Because God's counsel must still be worked out with respect to the elect. Not all of the elect have been born yet. The gospel still hasn't gone into every nook and cranny of every island of the sea and of every country. Many of the elect still have to be brought to salvation. So God cannot destroy all of the wicked right now and burn up the whole creation because He still has His purpose to be fulfilled with the elect. So for the sake of the elect, God forbears. You can see an illustration of that at the time of the flood when God came and announced, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. But He didn't do it immediately. He waited 120 years forbearing with all those ungodly people he would destroy with the flood. Forbearing, why? For the sake of elect Noah that he might be building that ark. Forbearance. The suspension of the full outpouring of the wrath of God over the reprobate until the great day of wrath. 
and it is for God's elect people, his forbearance. And that forbearance is grounded in the cross of Jesus Christ. There's already been a great day of wrath. There's already been a great outpouring of wrath. And that came on Calvary when the sin bearer who took all of our sins was hanging on that cross and God punished him in his wrath so that Christ made an atonement for us and obtained righteousness for us. And had he not done that, God would pour out all of his wrath upon us right now and destroy us. For the sake of Jesus, God forbears with the reprobate for the purpose of the salvation of his elect people. Forbearance. But there's also God's long-suffering, which is part of his goodness. And God's long-suffering is all of his mercy toward the elect. And that he never grows weary with us as he leads us to final salvation. There's a great day of wrath coming for the reprobate. There's also a great day of salvation coming for all of God's elect people. That's the goal. But now we're still sinners. And we need God every moment of every day. We continually sin against God. So we continually need God to bring us to repentance. We continually need God's forgiveness. We continually need God's strength that we might be able to stand before all the temptations that face us in this world. We continually need God's grace to be able to bear up under all the heavy burdens of this life. If you think of all of God's people and all of our needs, it's simply astonishing how much grace is needed to keep all of God's people. Well, God doesn't grow weary of us. He's a long-suffering God. As He and His mercy leads us to that final salvation He never grows weary of us. As Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He makes a promise to us in Jesus Christ, I'll save you to the uttermost in heaven, and until then, God will never grow weary of us. He will keep leading us to repentance and leading us all the way to glory. He's a long-suffering God. So now behold the goodness of your God in Jesus Christ. He's good in His forbearance. He's good as a long-suffering God. Goodness. The Apostle speaks in the text now of the riches of his goodness. Verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. The riches of his goodness refers to all the saving blessings of God. So his goodness is like his heart. It is his heart, and it's like a treasure chest. The goodness of God. It includes his forbearance. It includes his long-suffering. His heart, like a treasure chest. And out of this treasure chest of the goodness of God come all kinds of riches. Riches. 
all these saving blessings. And the apostle calls them riches because there are so many of them, plural, more than the sand of the seashore. And he calls them riches because they are so valuable, they required the infinite blood of Jesus Christ to attain them. Riches, he calls them riches because if you have them, you are so wealthy. You have joy and you have peace. Riches, they all come out of God's heart, God's decree of election. They all run through the cross of Jesus Christ and they all come to us by the word and the spirit of Christ. The riches of his goodness. The text names one. Out of that treasure chest of God's goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, the text names one treasure. He leads you to repentance. That is his goodness. Verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The word repentance means a change of mind, and it's the sinner's turn from sin. So in repentance, the sinner changes, he turns. He changes because now he thinks about his sin, he says about his sin, he views his sin according to what God in Scripture thinks about his sin and says about his sin and views his sin. There's a change. And so now he's overcome with sorrow because of his sin. He hates his sin. And he turns from that sin unto the living God in whom he believes, believing him to be a God of abundant pardon in Jesus Christ. And he cries out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And that repentance, as he turns from his sin unto God, will be accompanied by all the fruits of repentance so that the repentant sinner will have a radical change in the whole of his life and it will be obvious to everyone everywhere, he's changed. He's changed. He repented. Now repentance is amazing. When I repent, when you repent, when one of our children repents, when the consistory is working with a member of the congregation who's living in sin, and that sinner repents, repentance is so amazing. It is worthy of hallelujahs. Our Lord teaches us that when one sinner repents on this earth, all the angels of heaven erupt in joy and praise to God. Hallelujah. Repentance is amazing. Well, what explains it? Why do I repent? Why do you repent? Because there might not be anything that we by nature despise more than repentance. We'll go to our grave fighting against God and contending, you are wrong, God, and contending with everyone everywhere, no, you're wrong. Elders, you're all wrong. Husband, you're wrong. Wife, you're wrong. Father, mother, you're wrong. 
I'm not talking to you anymore. Teacher, you are wrong. Everyone, you're all wrong. I'm not wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not changing. I'm not owning up to anything. I'm not acknowledging fault in this. I'm not to blame. You're all to blame. I'm not. There's nothing we despise more than repenting. We don't want to change. We don't want to own up to our sin. So what explains repentance? When we're so adamantly opposed to repentance, the goodness of God, the goodness of God which leadeth thee to repentance, however stubborn our will is, God is strong to save and sweetly bends our will. He leads us to repentance. That's his goodness. That's why he forbears through history with the reprobate. That he might lead us to repentance. This is his long suffering to usward, that not, that not any of us should perish, but that all of us should be brought to repentance. And he's such a good God that he leads us to repentance. And that's so striking. Sometimes when we're working with someone we know and they're living in sin, we, we get so angry and so frustrated. We want to get behind them and crack the whip and with sharp words come after them and hammer on them, repent. God doesn't come behind us and drive us to repentance. The text said he leadeth thee to repentance. So God goes in front of us. He lays out all of his mercy, all of the sweet promises of the gospel. And by his almighty hand, he can do what no one else can do. He goes before us. He reaches back into us, right into our heart. And he sweetly changes our heart and bends our will. And he leads us to repentance. Isn't he good? Who is like him? If he were not good, no one in this auditorium this morning would ever repent. I wouldn't. You would never repent. And we'd all perish in hell. He's so good in his forbearance and long suffering that he leads us to repentance. Behold, the goodness of God, the riches. This is only one example. The riches of his goodness. In sharp contrast to all that loveliness and that beauty of the riches of God's goodness is the ugly despising of man. And now the main point of the apostle is, put, is to put to man the question regarding God's goodness, verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Despisest thou God's goodness? The apostle is addressing the proud, conceited, self-righteous judge who never looks at himself and his own sins, but who's always condemning other people for their sins, even though he commits the same sins. One and two. 
Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. So the apostles referring to this old man, and this old man is the judge, the proud judge who's always hammering away at other people for their sins while he's committing the same sins. This judge can be found anywhere in the world. He could be a Jew. He could be a Gentile. But he's especially the man who sits in the assembled congregation and who hears the preaching of the gospel. He's the man at whom the apostle can directly point and say, Thou, O man. So, for example, he's someone sitting in the gathering of believers in the city of Rome. So when Paul writes this epistle to the Romans and it's delivered to the believers and read to them, Paul, through his letter, can point right at some of these people sitting in Rome Thou, O man. He's not referring to some man out there way in the distant islands of the sea who's never heard the gospel. He's talking about someone who sits under the preaching of the gospel. Thou, O man. And I can be that man and you can be that man. We are not that man essentially in Christ. For that that man will ultimately perish and go to hell in the great day of wrath. He'll be destroyed. But my old man of sin is that man. And when I'm not living in the Spirit, walking according to the power of the Spirit, but I'm living in the flesh, walking according to the power of my sinful flesh, then I'm that man, that proud, self-righteous judge. Now in verse 3, the apostle essentially asks, "How, how do we explain you Who are you? What is it with you? So he asks in verse 3, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Is that what's going on? As you hammer away at other people, condemning them to hell, you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Is that what's going on? Well, yeah. But the apostle continues now in the words of our text. Or is it this, verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness? Is that what you're doing? And the answer, of course, is emphatically yes. When you hammer away at other people for their sins, you're acting like you don't have any sins and you don't have to repent. And you are, this is the root of it, you are despising the goodness of God. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness? Now that doesn't mean that the judge is despising God's goodness. As it is effectually being communicated to him by Christ and through the Spirit. When God's goodness comes to you to save you, It comes irresistibly and effectually and it will go right into your heart and God will save you no matter how much you despise him and God will sweetly bend your will and cause you to celebrate his goodness. 
despising the goodness of God is referring to the truth of his goodness. The doctrine of his goodness. And the apostle is talking about this man who sits under the preaching of the gospel and he hears all about the truth, the doctrine of God's goodness, Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his death, his blood, all God's goodness and his forbearance and long-suffering, and he despises that doctrine, that truth. He holds it in contempt. Get it as away from me, as far away from me as possible. And so now the apostle asks despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? And the answer is yes, that's what you're doing. Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Again, with that statement, the apostle is not referring to God's goodness as a reality that is presently, subjectively being experienced. That God's goodness is actually coming toward and even into the heart of this sinner right now? The apostle is referring to God's goodness as an objective doctrinal fact. Not knowing this truth, that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, The common interpretation of this text is the wrong interpretation of this text, and it inserts into the text at this point divine intention where there is none. Notice, the apostle does not say, not knowing that the goodness of God is intending to, is trying to, wants to, lead thee to repentance right now? That's not what the apostle says. But with that understanding of the text, then the idea is, proud, self-righteous judge, God is trying to save you right now. God is trying to bring you to repentance in his goodness right now. Why are you resisting him, thwarting him? Why are you stymieing God and stopping him right now? Don't do that. Well, with that interpretation, then God has his goodness and he extends it to the elect and to the reprobate alike. He wants to save all. He's trying to save all. His goodness is coming to all, trying to bring all to repentance. With that interpretation of the text, then God's saving goodness is not particular for the elect alone, but it's common and general for all. With that interpretation of the text, then God's goodness is not sovereign and effectual, actually saving those he desires to save, but God has a desire to bring to repentance all, but not all are brought to repentance, only some, only some because others are able to stymie God, stop him. This is the Arminian interpretation of the text, and this was the interpretation given by the theologians of the Christian Reformed Church in 1924. When the three points of common grace were adopted, the first point of common grace says that God has an attitude of favor towards all men. Where does the scripture teach that? That God has an attitude of favor toward all men. Well, one of the texts cited in the first point of common grace is Romans 2 verse 4. And the theologians were appealing to Romans 2 verse 4. This is clear biblical proof 
that God wants to save through the preaching of the gospel all men, elect and reprobate alike. He's trying to lead all to repentance. Not so. The text does not say, not knowing that the goodness of God is trying to, intending to lead thee to repentance right now. That's not what the text says. The apostle is saying to any man anywhere, no matter who he is, don't you know the truth? Don't you know the objective doctrinal truth that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Don't be thrown off by that personal pronoun, thee. Let me give an example. Suppose I'm teaching a class on how to climb Mount Everest. We have this little camp down at the base of the mountain. We're in the room. There's all these students. They want to hike Mount Everest. And the teacher is standing there. And one of the things the teacher says is, you need to know this, that high altitude leads to altitude sickness. You need to know that. You need to expect that. As we start scaling the mountain, high altitude, probably feel dizzy, headaches, nauseous. High altitude leads to altitude sickness. Now, if the instructor in the class really wants to drive home that point, and bring it home to all of the students, he'll employ the personal pronoun you. And he'll say, high altitude leads you to altitude sickness. Now he's not referring to a reality that's presently being experienced as if we're all climbing the mountain, we're all experiencing high altitude right now, and it's right now leading us all to altitude sickness. That's not what's happening. We're not even on the mountain yet. We're in the classroom down at the base camp. It's not a reality being experienced right now. Don't you know this? You need to know this. High altitude leads you to altitude sickness. That's what the apostle is doing in the text. He's giving a doctrinal fact. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you are presently experiencing the goodness of God or you are not. Here is an undeniable, incontrovertible fact. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. If you ever repent, here's the explanation. It's the goodness of God that led you to repentance. For here's the truth. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And now the question is, don't you know that truth? Don't you know that doctrine? And the implied answer is, of course you do. You don't experience that goodness right now. But you know the truth of that goodness intellectually. Why are you despising it, you foolish judge? Why are you always condemning everyone for the sins they commit, acting like you don't have to repent? You don't need Jesus. You don't need his righteousness. When you do that, you are despising the goodness of God, the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. Man's despising. 
Very briefly, now the apostle will go on in verse 5 to explain the cause and the result of this despising. The cause, verse 5, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart. That's why you're doing this. You have a very hard heart, and you are an impenitent man. And the more you keep despising the goodness of God as it's preached, the Spirit's hardening your heart even more. That's the cause. Your hard, stubborn, impenitent heart. And the result is, verse 5, Thou treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the day of wrath is the day when God will no longer forbear, but he will come as a just judge in Jesus Christ and he will pour out all of his wrath. That's the last day, the day of wrath. But that day is also, according to verse 5, a day of revelation. It's the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, man is always in his unbelief charging God with being unjust and foolish and cruel and capricious. But in that last day, there will be the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God will show in that last day just how just, righteous, He is, and even the damned will see it and acknowledge it. God is just. The last day will be the great day of wrath, and it will be the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And now until then, the hard, impenitent judge is treasuring, says verse 5, he's treasuring. So we have all this wrath of God like a big body of water held back by the dam of his forbearance. Lots of water. It's going to come out one day, his wrath. And in the meantime, the proud, self-righteous judge with his hard heart is treasuring up wrath by all of his sin and despising of God's goodness. He's, He's treasuring up. He's adding more wrath to those waters. And those waters keep building and building and building until the last day when God takes the dam away and all the waters of his wrath come out upon the foolish, proud, self-righteous judge. That's the result. The judgment of God in the great day of wrath. Now this whole text, with the beauty of God's goodness And the ugliness of man's despising, this whole text is put in the form of a very sharp question that's addressed to any man, whoever he may be. So listen now to the very sharp word of the scriptures. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness? And you can picture the Apostle Paul almost pointing his finger Maybe he would had he been in their presence. Pointing his finger at, locking eyes with a particular man, men, people, men and women, and pointing right at them. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness? Having first pointed it at himself. 
as every preacher must. The word is sharp. It's very, very sharp. Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word is not only sharp as to its external form, but the word is very sharp as the spirit takes it and he cuts right into the heart. The Spirit uses this sharp word with the reprobate. The reprobate sinner is hardened by this word. Don't you tell me I'm a sinner and that I need Jesus and his righteousness and you're calling to me to repentance. You're telling me to change my life. It agitates him, it aggravates him and he's hardened even more by this very sharp word. Now, you and I don't know who's reprobate, right? So we may see an impenitent sinner who's very hard-hearted. We don't know that he's reprobate. He may be elect, and God may still save him. So we keep praying. We keep working. But if one continues all the way to the end, hard and impenitent, along the way, then the Spirit uses this word to harden him or her even more. But the Spirit uses this sharp word for the salvation of us, his elect people. Are you despising God's goodness? Am I? How do, how do I know? How do you know if you are? Well, it looks like this. You don't take your own sin seriously. You really like to be a judge and condemn everyone else for their sins even though you commit the same sins. That's what we do when we despise God's goodness. So we're the judge, the proud, self-righteous judge. And we want to gossip and talk to everybody about so-and-so and this violation of the seventh commandment, let's say, fornication, adultery, and how awful and we're aghast and you're talking all about so-and-so and you're the one looking at pornography at night. Why? That's what the apostles say. Why do you do that? Why do you despise God's goodness like that? Or the apostle would be saying, you you keep hammering away at this family in church. Can't believe what they let their kids watch. And maybe it is bad. Hammering away at them. So conceited. And they're so horrible. But do you know that your kids don't even know their catechism? Do you even know that? You're evidently not teaching your kids their catechism. So you're pounding away at them for what they watch. Well, your kids don't even know their catechism. The apostles say, why do you do that? You're despising God's goodness. You're acting like you don't need repentance. You don't need Jesus. Everybody else does. And you go through that long list of sins, the longest catalog of sins in the Bible, the end of Romans 1. 
and start taking all these labels and plugging them to other people. And meanwhile, you're doing the same thing. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness? So if we are, then the sharp word comes to us this morning. Who art thou, O man? And God uses that sharp word rooted in the gospel of his goodness to convict us, to bring us to repentance, to lead us to repentance. Do you repent? You, me. Does your heart actually break? over the sins you commit? Is there change in your life? Do you trust in Jesus for righteousness and not yourself? Well, according to Romans 2, verses 4 and 5, if you do, you are very, very rich because God's goodness, and God's goodness alone can do this, God's goodness has led thee to repentance Hallowed be the name of God. What a good God he is in his forbearance and long-suffering. Do you know what I would do and what you would do? If we, if we were this thrice holy, infinite, transcendent, exalted God, and a little, little man on earth was despising our goodness, I know what I'd do. I know what you'd do. That little man wouldn't make it to the end of the day. We'd damn him and punish him everlastingly in hell. He's so good. Our God is so good in his forbearance and long-suffering. We have despised his goodness. He doesn't damn us and cast us away. He comes again and again as a long-suffering God. And he leads us to repentance. Who is a God like unto him and his mercy? And you know why this, what explains this goodness to us? We've already stated it. There already was a great day of wrath. When God poured out his wrath upon Jesus as our substitute. And for Jesus' sake, God continually leads us to repentance and showers us with the riches of his goodness. No wrath for us. Goodness for us. Who is a God like unto our God? Psalm 31 verse 19. How great is thy goodness which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which has brought, which has wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we praise thee for thy goodness, and we are ashamed for how we are not good, but so often in our flesh, very evil. In fact, there is no good thing within that flesh. We're sorry for our sins. We're sorry for our sinfulness. Now, Lord, keep leading us to repentance. Make us holy. Conform us to the image of Christ and to the praise of thy great goodness. For Jesus' sake, amen.